Well, good morning and welcome, dare I say. Uh, good morning, welcome to London, but also uh, good evening and welcome to Shenzhen, where we're delighted to have uh, one of our regular guests, Professor Fan Gong from the China Development Institute. And we're here today to have a discussion on the global economic outlook, investment, trade and cooperation. Uh, and it has been certainly one of the benefits of lockdown is that we've all become more used to having these online sessions, which of course allows us to engage in dialogues in new and interesting and varied ways. So we are absolutely delighted. Uh, next slide, Mike. Uh, now, one of the things that we want to cover today uh, in this uh, Global Economic Outlook is that I'm going to be hosting a conversation uh, with Professor Gong. Uh, and what I would like to suggest, if you don't mind, is that you, the audience, uh, really feel free to participate by putting questions into the chat room. You'll find that uh, we can weave these in uh, to the conversation, but please do use the chat room facility there because I'm here with you. I'm not on Zoom, I'm not on uh, not on Teams, I'm not, not on Signal, and I'm not on WhatsApp. So type them in and we'll weave them in the conversation. If you've got detailed questions or comments, please feel free to put those in as well. Uh, the professor will receive uh, every single one of, uh, of them with your email attached and can answer if, if necessary. But we really are delighted. You've read his CV three times in, in registering for this event. But I, I personally think it's a, a compliment uh, that the professor comes because he does sit on the Monetary Policy Committee of China uh, and is there to give us some really keen insights. So next slide, Mike. Um, now, we just thought we'd start uh, very quickly with a little poll. Uh, the poll here is just to find out how optimistic or pessimistic you are as, as uh, audience members. We, the panelists, can't vote. Uh, but do please have a look uh, and uh, fingers on buzzers, I think is the phrase over here, uh, Professor Gong. Uh, our audience does tend to be quite opinionated, so uh, already half of the audience have voted. Uh, and we're just going to close that uh, poll in just a moment, and it'll give us both a flavor uh, of how people feel. So I'm just about to close that, and there, there are the results. So 50% are slightly pessimistic. And personally uh, speaking, I, I think uh, that's how I feel as well. Anyway, we're going to go back to the normal slide deck and have a look. And we're going to turn to a series of questions that I would like to uh, suggest structure a little bit our discussion. So uh, as we return to that, Mike is just uh, racking that up there. Okay. So our talking points today are, are these six, and I certainly don't intend to read them out, but you get the flavor here. We're going to be looking very much at the impact of COVID-19, future resilience, the Ukraine, uh, central bank digital currencies, in which, of course, China is leading. And Professor Gong, I think, has some interesting things to share with us on that. Uh, the Chinese emissions trading scheme, which for me was an enormous announcement uh, last July when they first put out a national emissions trading scheme. China has had emissions trading schemes before, but this was a national one. Uh, and what should we be doing as a group, particularly FS Club? and in the wider world to encourage uh, the world economy to progress. So those are our talking points. And I'd like perhaps to start with the first one, if, if we might, Professor, as the world continues to cope with the impact of COVID-19, what are the trends that you see in investment and trade? Well, uh, first of all, uh, it's really my pleasure to join you, uh, Michael, uh, to in this kind of the conversation. Uh, it's really, uh, I mean, uh, uh, during this uh, 
a difficult time. You know, uh, we keep uh, exchange our views, and then uh, we keep encourage. Uh, although I saw from the poll, no one really optimistic. No one really very optimistic. But still, there are some people. Twenty percent of people is, you know, slightly optimistic. So keep optimistic and keep a conversation, and that's a way we can do more. You know, for the for for the economy. But anyway, uh, for your first question, uh, I think uh, this question mainly about China. Uh, I would say uh, mo most of European countries, U.S., uh, Japan, and uh, other countries are now basically open, uh, reopen. I say uh, China, but China still uh, have this uh, so-called zero zero tolerance uh, policy. Uh, so it's still not yet changed. Uh, here, I, I would like, and then that caused quite a uh, quite a economy, uh, particularly when the large city, the the city center, the international uh, uh, port, you know, like Shanghai, uh, get locked down. You can you, you can imagine uh, what the impact that could be. You know, what the impact on the other other country and the world trade. Uh, on the on the supply chain, so it's it's really still serious. Uh, but 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 I, I would suggest that we think about this uh, in the shoes of of policymakers, Chinese policymakers. You know why they still keep this so-called zero tolerance policy. We had this zero tolerance policy policy in past two years, more than two years, since since the uh, Wuhan lockdown. And since then, it's really zero, zero cases. And zero cases means zero deaths. So that's important, the zero deaths. For other country, you know, when you have some deaths, and then things get getting improved, uh, that can accept it, but if in the country after two, you know after two years with a zero deaths, suddenly you open the country, you open the society, and you got a, a million of infection cases, and then not a million, at the hundred million the cases of uh, of infection, and a, and a million deaths or two million deaths. That's something hard to be acceptable, right? For anyone, for 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 us, for policymakers, you know, it's a difficult decision. Of course, this is a political decision. It's not an economic decision. It's not a you know pure you know just a medical decision. This is a political. So uh, we we understand that it's very difficult for uh, policymakers in China to uh, to think of how we can move forward. And people are doing a lot of things during this, you know, zero tolerance uh, uh, policy operation. Uh, well, people watching uh, how the other countries deal with, how the other countries result of reopening, and uh, watching and waiting for new data to show how this Omicron, uh, you know, variant uh, to 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 do the damage, and uh, waiting for the new data about the death rate, 
about the seriousness of, uh, of this uh, Omicron. And then waiting for the new medical, uh, the medicine for, 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 for the cure. And also people are increasing and forcing uh, the increase of the uh, uh, vaccination. Uh, my my, my 90 year, 97 years old mother got uh, vaccinated last month, last week actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, the doctor went to the, to, 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 to the home and to, to give her a shot. So people are, you know, making this, uh, try to increasing, particularly the vaccination on the elderly, uh, on the elderly, and to try to prevent, uh, you know, the most serious uh, uh, consequences. So anyway, uh, it's still, uh, I think it's still uh, taking some time for China uh, to move forward, but this is definitely this is the, the the issue for the for the economy, for the investment, for the uh, for the for the employment. You know, China now have a bigger employment issue. Uh, you know, during this months, uh, China now have uh, uh, more than 10 million new graduates from the from universities looking for the jobs. You know, when a lot of the layoff taking place in the in the country. Uh, so uh, I would say we will still have uh, some difficult time, uh, you know, with this uh, COVID-19 uh, for the investment, for the trade. Uh, you know, things are improving. People are learning the lessons. And so we try to keep the, for example, the, the transportation, the supply chain uh, can continue, particularly in the Shanghai port reopened uh, very quickly uh, so that that will improve the situation uh, but still uh, we may see some interruptions uh, we may see some difficulties you know ahead uh, so we're still in in the whole globe whole global economy is still in the shadow of the covid 19 still not yet passed through the so this kind of the pandemic situation We'll move on to the next slide, but just while we do that, um, question here from Doug Andrews. You, you indicated that it is a political decision to change policy on, on COVID. Uh, the 20th National Party Conference, I think, is coming up in October, November. Um, uh, do you see that or any other type of incident that we should be looking at as well, around then there might be a policy change? Uh, I really don't know. <laughs> uh, you know but but I, I think the the other factors uh, are important, like what I mentioned, you know, the new numbers of other country and the, you know Hong Kong number are very helpful uh, for for the for Chinese, you know, to understand uh, what's going on, you know, how how the, you know, it's it's two things. It Omicron make a lower death rate, but mm -hmm. with a huge number of population. When the death rate may be low, but death toll may still be high, so that's a that that's a problem. And the vaccination, and the new new medicine, and those factors, I think, are the more important. Political event may, you know, provide some opportunities, uh, but I'm not quite sure it's wholly determined by by those kind of things. Good. Well, I'd like to turn to resilience. Um, we do tend to focus on the pandemic, but we have had uh, quite a number of resilience issues completely unrelated to the pandemic. So the 
Uh, we've had explosions in ports around the world, whether it's Beirut or fires in China or uh, now in Southeast Asia, we've had the Suez Canal closing. Um, and all of this has been against a, I would argue, a 30, perhaps 40 year trend of increasing efficiency in global supply chains uh, to the point they're hyper efficient, they're very, very low cost, but they're, to use a phrase I like to use, they're very brittle. Uh, and once they snap, then everything seems to go to pieces. Um, we've had a lot of discussion here in the West about that. And I think one of the difficulties is determining how much fat, if I can call it that, how much fat do you put in the system so that you, you can you know, get through a bad period. The problem, of course, is in many ways competition. I put fat in my system, but if it's not used, my neighbor makes a lot more money than I do, uh, and I've just wasted it. What is the Chinese view on resilience? Well, uh, the, uh, you know, both pandemic, during this pandemic, and then we have, uh, we have uh, some, uh, 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 you know, conflict in the world, in the, some war and something. And all those things are really uh, reflect or shows to us that there are some problem in past, you know, for the globalization, for the formation of the new supply chain in the era of globalization. Uh, we have admitted uh, the global supply chain uh, in the past has been maybe too much concentrated in certain areas, including China. You know, as a Chinese economist, I, I would like to see all the you know supply chain stay in China, all company come into China. But admit it, you know, we have to admit it that maybe that's too concentrated, too too much concentrated. You know, we need some kind of diversification of the supply chain. Uh, in, you know, among the regions, among the uh, uh, you know countries, uh, in terms you know to give more consideration, more attention to uh, to the the, the transportation, uh, you know, uh, the 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 continuation of transportation uh, of any event which may interrupt this kind of the supply chain. So from that point of view, I would say certain degree of diversification and the regionalization of the global supply chain maybe is needed, maybe needed for us to improve the resilience of the supply chain of the world. Uh, so that means with, you know, this is a trade-off. We need a sufficiency. We need the division of labor in the in the industry, among the industry, and in the within the industry, and we need the the division of labor of the regions of the countries. Uh, but at the same time, we need to consider uh, the other factors, uh, which uh, you know are reviewed by the, this you know this time by the pandemic and the conflict. So pay more attention to the, the continuation when the, uh, some event, some interruption took place, 
and we continue to have this uh, supply chain without interruption of supply, particularly the supply, you know, uh, you know, to to maintain this, uh, you know, the the the, the trend uh, of the uh, uh, trade and the investment and the supply uh, to continue to support the the market in the different places rather than uh, in in uh, few places. Okay. Uh, just as we move on to the next question, on, on that last point on resilience, um, we may have to be uh, terse, uh, Professor, but Dan Fianney is curious, you know, is there a talent disconnect um, here where your graduates are coming out into a slightly changed world? Is that partially responsible for the lack of employment? Uh, no, no. The, 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 the unemployment is caused by the interruption of the uh, uh, of the production okay. of the of the market, but the, the uh, uh, graduation is taking place at the same time. You know, uh, so this graduation is not caused by is another cause of unemployment, but it will add the problem to the to the unemployment. So that's uh, you know normally in uh, in other under other time, uh, you know, something like 70, 80 percent of the graduates would have got the job when they come out of the school. But this year, you know, never looks very bad. And this adds a problem of yeah. the unemployment anyway. Okay. Well, our third area of discussion was price stability. And in many ways, and I think as economists, we're we're pretty relaxed about prices bouncing up and down. That's what it's about. That's what markets do. You know, if an iPhone is very expensive, well, that's just supply and demand. But when it hits food, <laughs> then it starts to bite um, and it has many other ramifications. So uh, we, we've certainly seen the first few bounces uh, since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine in on the 24th of February. Um, it now looks as if this is going to be a, a long-running, simmering conflict for some time. Uh, what do you think that for, foretells on, on price stability? Yeah, well, of course, now people blame the, uh, you know, commodity prices uh, and caused by the uh, pandemic and, uh, you know, interruption of the uh, supply chain and also the, the war. The conflict uh, also interrupted the supply chain. So, when the supply problem come out, now we look at the uh, supply side very much, you know. But I would like to remember, re remind us of the man-side uh, uh, problem. In past years. You know, so many countries issued so many money, so much money, particularly some country which you know issued the international money, and they adopted a very easing, quantitative easing, monetary policy, which first first of all, those money flooded not the 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 commodity good commodity market and the goods market. The first, the, the money went to asset market, both the housing market and the stock market, you know, to push those prices up. So if we're talking about the inflation, the inflation already there. It's not a 
come to the goods market, but it's already on the assets market. So then we have this interruption of the you know, supply chain of goods market. Then we have the problem of you know, supply demand problem on the goods market. Then we saw this inflation of both producers market and consumers market. So this is a, actually a last uh, effect of those uh, monetary policies, quantitative easing monetary policies. Some country still have so-called super easing uh, uh, monetary policy uh, in some country you know, like Japan. Uh, so th those factors contribute to current uh, you know, inflation uh, as well. Not only, you know, now more, more tension paid to the supply chain, but actually the, quite a, you know, I believe the so-called traditional monetary theory, uh, it's a money issue. It's, it's a monetary policy issue. You know, when they issue too much money, eventually, you know, sooner or later, you will have inflation. If you have a super uh, easing policy, monetary policy, you may have hyperinflation. So in in the in the end, so uh, I would say definitely we need to pay attention to, to this supply chain issue, but we also need to pay attention uh, to the to the monetary policy issue, which start from actually from the you know uh, global financial crisis in 2008-2009 and afterward most country I mean most of uh, you know developed country western country have quite a quite a relaxed uh, monetary policy and after the pandemic you know the pandemic it's become a super you know super easing so that's the one of the causes of inflation this is a long effect long tail effect now we finally we got these consequences we got this result but this is not only the supply side issue it's also demand side issue and uh, we need to take less this lesson for our future uh, uh management of the macroeconomy and the global economy as well yes we're certainly learning a lot uh, Patino, particularly uh, a lot on micro indicators advance notice i mean we we really yeah, yeah. Really yeah, particularly, particularly, you know, in a quite a long time, when we have a globalization, we have a improvement of efficiency of the, the you know, the manufacturing, the produ production. Uh, so this, it seems that we issue a lot of money, but it, it seems that we have, you know, sufficient supply. So that we, we in, for the long time, we didn't see inflation, but actually, Inflation taking place first of all in the asset market, then eventually it come to you know to the consumer market, you know to the consumer goods. So, you know during that time without inflation, without the CPI inflation, I mean consumer inflation, people say, oh no problem, we issue more money, and then we we can do everything we we like. But actually you already you know to 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 have the, the problem there. And later on, only later on, you, you see the result. But actually, it happened. What the causes are taking place in a very long time ago? Well, we 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 always go back in the West to Milton Friedman on this one about the issuance of money. 
Um, which turns us nicely uh, to, to our, our, our next uh, topic of discussion, central bank digital currencies. Um, yeah. I've long pointed out that uh, one of the interesting things I don't think people have remarked about central bank digital currencies is that potentially, if they were designed in certain ways as opposed to others, uh, we as economists would for the first time know the real quantity of money and the real velocity of money, uh, which we've actually never really known. We've, we've only guessed at. So that's kind of one interesting bit for us. Um, the cryptocurrency people like to claim that central bank digital currencies are cryptocurrencies. Well, they're not. I mean, nobody is using a consensus mechanism. They're not even using blockchains. So it, they're actually unrelated. And the CBDC arguments, I feel, have been misrepresented in the popular press. It was proceeding long before cryptocurrency even arrived. It's just that when you change the operating system of, of a country, that's at least as important as the uh, change to a policy on COVID. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big change and you don't want to do it lightly. On the other hand, uh, many of us over here truly admire China uh, for the way in which it's done it. Uh, so it's been a pilot, which is of course the right way to do it. Uh, you rolled the pilot out to a really large group of people. You incentivized them to, to use the system. Uh, you had it at uh, your major sporting events recently, so it's been really interesting. But over here in the West, we actually get very little news about it. And so this is possibly the one question I'm desperate to hear your thoughts on. How's it going with the Chinese CBDC experiment? Yeah. And what do you think the effect would be on your economy and on trade? Yeah, well, I, uh, actually, I have to admit it. Uh, I really still trying to figure out what we can do and what this can, you know, central bank digital currency could do. We are still not very, very clear, actually. But uh, I, I have this kind of the, uh, you know, the guess of what's going on. Well, first of all, the 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 uh, crypto currency is not a currency for me. It's assets. It's a speculation, the investment assets, like a, you know, like an index in the in the stock market, you know. So you you can you can bet on everything, and this is a, you know, nest token you can bet on. So it's assets. It's not a currency. It's an asset. How much is it worth? It worth you know something like a hundred dollar. It's in terms of other currency, the real currencies. But. For the digital currency, I would like to argue that actually digitalization of currency already happened a long time ago. Mm. Think about the credit card. Credit card is kind of the digitalization, right? When you have a credit card, if your weight, your salary is a uh, you know trans, you know transferred from your your employer's account to your account, and then you you know, you spend all the money, you pay your payment, your purchase by credit card. Then in the whole whole year, you will not see any kind of the paper currency. So the, it's already for you. It's all the it, it's already a digit. You know, it's kind of numbers on the screen, either on your computer, on your mobile phone, or on the on the a a ATM machine. So it's already digital. And then we have this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, payment system, payball, you know, uh, WeChart, you know, the, the, all the smartphone, you know, the iPhone have a pay, 
payment system and the Huawei have its own payment system. It, it's become more digital. Digital, you know, in China after the pandemic, in three years, definitely, literally, I never use any paper money again in past three years. It's all digital. So the digitalization of currency already happened. However, I would argue this is a, a decentralized digital currency, the digitalization of currency. So currency is still issued by the central bank, but the payment system, banking system, the credit card are issued by the banks or the platforms or the smartphone companies or the, you know, maybe we have a, you know, this is a, called a Meta and a Libra uh, issue. That's also the platform uh, uh, digitalization. It's not the issue, the currency. Currency is still issued by the central bank. Yeah. Now we have a central bank issue the digital currency. I would like to call that is a centralization of digitalization of a currency. So the currency is a still a currency which you need a sovereignty, you need a, you need authority, you need a government support, you need a legal system support. That's a currency, and but it's a more digitalization. The difference between the centralized digitalization and the decentralized di digitalization is that now with the with the uh, uh, centralized digitalization, the central bank can get the information of trans transaction and all kind of the payments directly from the consumers to the the central bank system. Before, when you have a decentralized system, you central bank have to collect the data collect the data of the transaction or prove the, prove the transaction uh, from the different banks, financial institutions, and then the uh, uh, online pay, payment system. It's a decentralized information system. And then your, your central bank have to collect data from them. The first things, you know, consumer data were collected by the, 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 the institutions. And then central bank collected data from institutions. But now with the central bank digital money, central bank can directly get the information of all the payments using that you know, central bank digital money. So that's what happened in, in China, actually. I don't know. I, I, have, uh, I think I have uh, some central bank money in my account. Uh, what well, that's that's given by the government, given by the central bank as a, as a, as a you know kind of a, a, a word uh, when you registered a central bank digital currency account. But I don't know if I want to use it because the, the other using other way of payment is very convenient. Mm -hmm. It's maybe more convenient than than the central bank money. Well, if I used to that, it, central bank money could be the, as the same, you know, as as a convenient as the same as other uh, others, but it's not more convenient anyway, uh, and it's a I don't know if there's special uses. So mm -hmm. basically, I would say for the domestic 
money user, uh, I don't see the difference between centralized or decentralized for, for, for the consumer itself. But international trade, if people all use the central bank currency, then you can directly make the trade between the central bank and the central bank, right? Here in the country, one central bank and many institutions. So it doesn't matter if I deal with the central bank directly or deal with the institutions uh, directly for the consumers. But if I doing the international trade and I have to got the, you know, the issue like the, the currency exchange rate, then maybe it's more convenient for, uh, for, for, for the transactions between the central bank and the central bank. Mm. That, that's well, a prospect for the use of this international, I mean, the uh, central bank digital currency. So frankly speaking, I, I'm not, a, I, I, because I'm doing the business, not doing the business, I'm not mm. doing the international trade, and, and I think that digital currency is to still not be useful for the international trade. But looking at the future, looking at the possibilities, uh, I would say maybe that's a uh, make the international transactions more convenient, more uh, easy uh, for different uh, uh, country, different central between the different the central bank. Uh, so that's my imagination of. <laughs> Of, of, of this issue. But basically, I would say, think about the digitalization first, then think about the digital currency, uh, how, how the difference is. I, I, I find myself agreeing with you immensely. It's, it's uh, one, it's not new, we are digital. Two, to the consumer, uh, probably nothing. Three, um, you know, a potentially you know good effect on central bank to central bank, and therefore some trade issues. But uh, I, I do think the economic numbers might improve. I think as well, there's some potential issues with credit. We we rely actually on a very slow credit system, and this would speed it up, and it might might cause some credit. But those will be adjustments we can make, I suspect. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, and I think, interestingly, the pandemic in some countries, you know, particularly in America, oddly, when they wanted to get stimulus checks straight out to people, they began to realize that that might be a benefit. So it could, oddly, be a social welfare benefit more than anything else in many countries that the government can yeah. see what's going yeah. on. If the central bank can make the transaction directly to the, to the consumer account, that will be the convenience, you know. That's yeah. actually you say there's a social welfare, and that's a reduce the transaction cost in in the process. Yeah, although I did I did uh, some testimony to the House of Lords about six years ago, and I did point out that it would also permit you to create taxes very quickly. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. uh, we need to move on, sadly, and we've only got ten minutes. So, uh, but what I'd like to do is uh, we're all excited about carbon trading. I think rather unfairly, China has taken a lot of flack um, for its position on carbon. I, I'm very conscious that uh, something like 15 years ago, I began to see as I traveled in China, genuine signs about concern of the environment, et cetera. Um, but China was a developing nation and some of the flack it takes is, is about just China's size population wise, when I feel it should be based on GDP. 
Um, I also think there were some uh, inequity discussions in a sense where we're renting spaces of carbon in the sky. <laughs> we in the West used it all up. Maybe we should take it down and lend it to other countries for 50 years or something like that, which is not what we talk about over here. We're sort of like, well, that's all up there. We're going to have to leave it. Now, uh, what I got very excited about was finding out years ago that China was interested in emissions trading and using markets to do this and was doing it on a regional basis. Uh, but now with the Chinese emissions trading scheme up and running, uh, something like 20% of global emissions are covered by a credible trading scheme. And those trading stream schemes are, tra uh, are trading at credible prices. Um, and I think all of these trading schemes in, in total cover about 50% of the relevant markets. So if they go up to 99%, then it would cover well over 40% of global emissions. So it's a very encouraging sign. In addition, uh, Chile in March, uh, which we at CN had a tiny hand in, issued a policy performance bond where the government will pay more interest if it fails to meet its 2030 target. So like an inflation linked bond. So there's a lot of good stuff going on using markets. Um, I'm also pleased with that because it means this one sliver of environmental social governance can kind of be left out of all the paperwork because the market will solve it. So with that extraordinarily long introduction, and I'm sorry about that, um, you know, how significant do you think carbon trading will be uh, in the transition to a sustainable economy in China? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I, I would say, as an economist, I would say that's a very important. It's a really, I hope it really play, can play the, the the significant roles in this uh, carbon, uh, you know, reduction process. Uh, but I think that's the the major problem of China's carbon uh, reduction effort. We have we have all the governmental, uh, you know, policy uh, measure measurement. We have subsidies for the for the new energy, and the new energy is really uh, developed very fast. And China is a, and in the in the best position for the for the you know renewable uh, uh, energy consumption. Uh, and the government have enforcement of the target, the plan, the so-called plan target uh, of energy consumption. Uh, but only we. You know, we we have all this we call the administrative measures, but it's really like of the so-called market measures. We haven't have a so-called uh, carbon tax, and we yeah. haven't have much carbon trading. Carbon market, you can argue, it's already there ten years, more than ten years. I think it is from the 2009, yeah. uh, 2009, 2008. We already have so-called market, but we never have carbon quotas, carbon permit dis distribution. So that's the problem. You know, the, the the carbon trade has come up with the name of a cap and the trade, right? Yeah. We haven't have the cap. Cap. The current cap is still, you know behind the the cap of energy consumption. It's not a directly a carbon permission. It's a 
kind of energy consumption permission. So energy consumption quota under under the 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 the, the plan. So government is still enforce the in energy uh, energy consumption, not the carbon emission directly. So that's the why I say well. In years ago, government uh, announcing that we will encourage carbon trade, and uh, then we have developed our carbon market, and officially it announced that the carbon market is established, and we need to have more carbon trade. But if you don't have a cap, you know the the word of leak of carbon, you know carbon leak, and people where where is the you know, people's incentives for the carbon trading, you know, why I have to, to pay, you know, for, for my carbon emission. So you need a, you need a, a so-called enforceable, measurable, and a verif so verifiable uh, a quota, a carbon permit, then you have the market to really function. So that will be the first step. That's the way we are working with the government, encourage, you know, ask them to move fast. First of all, from the, from the, you know, the, the, the indirect control of this carbon uh, permission uh, to the direct control, uh, because the you know, energy quota actually not favor the new uh, renewable energies, you know, is a this, you know, discriminate actually against the the, the renewable uh, the energies. So, in another distinguish, you know, the 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 you know traditional energy and the uh, and the new energy. It's a just target on the energy consumption. So, we need to first of all directly have the carbon permission. Then you have cover, you know, totally totally covering quota system. No no leak and enforceable and verifiable you know that kind of things then you have more people more company region region no government to have the incentives to buy the the and the, the carbon emission permit so it's a still long way to go but i would say people now have very much interested in this and i believe the market forces is there and the companies are waiting you know, uh, you know, to to look at into this kind of the new new trading system, uh, and uh, really, uh, uh, people have the feel that they have to join this uh, effort. Yeah. Well, uh, it sounds as if things in China are the same as they are here. It's getting the governments to enforce those caps when the politics are inconvenient. Let a local power person just kind of do their thing. We've only got a few minutes. Um, this is the last uh, topic area. Uh, Christopher Williams uh, typed a question in, um, which I think is related very much to this bit about cooperation. You know, every government looks at its own economic structure, you know, China, the US, Britain, um, but in developing countries, you know, as we see these recessionary times looming, uh, as we see the price volatility we spoke about earlier, um, do you see any way we could encourage a better working relationship between the USA, Europe, and China to help the weaker countries, perhaps particularly regarding food supply? Well, uh, first of all, I would like to see, uh, you know, when looking at this, this question, the Cold War definitely not a good way. 
for the cooperation, <laughs> for for the for the for the world economy progress. You know, you have to have the uh, you know kind of a, you know cooperation, uh, you know working together and with this you know same target. And then for the for the other, you know, how to help others, but uh, particularly developing countries, I, I would say that thing is very important to think about the interest of those people. You know, some country now think of themselves, they want to achieve their strategic goals, even at the expenses of other countries, uh, people's interest. They even don't care the other countries people go back to poverty, you know, to lose their prosperities and go back to the poverty, the, the hunger and all those. So you, you have to think about what they want and people want better, you know, life. They have enough food and they want to have a better, you know, the future for their children. So that's basically we need to, to think about their, their needs. So that's that's what I say uh, uh, to think about what the, the most uh, helpful for them to start their economic uh, development. Uh, not from your point of view. For example, uh, we just talk about uh, the, the 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 energy, the the carbon emission, the global warming. Well, for for those local people, the global warming would be the issue. But when, when you take the global warming as a priority, but think about the priorities of those people in the locality, in the developing country, the hunger may be the first one, priorities. Uh, education and transportations, you know, those kind of things may be as a priority. So think of priorities, think about interest of people, and that's the good start of cooperation. Well, it's a great place it would stand. It's almost the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And folks, I just, I, I'm absolutely thrilled that Professor Fan has, has spent this amount of time with us. That is one of the great things we're going to have cooperation is keeping these dialogues going. And Professor yeah. Fan, your erudition and your insights are greatly appreciated to hear it directly from you rather than filtered by so many, uh, so many forms of press. Uh, and it's it's a delight for me, of course, that your English is so excellent because it means that wow. you convey everything beautifully. Um, I hope that we continue these discussions from time to time because it is an important insight to hear directly from people what, what they're thinking and not through so many channels. And Professor Khan, yeah. you are a wonderful ambassador uh, for cooperation between peoples and we very much enjoy working with you and your support at China Development Institute. Uh, for uh, us here at Xi'an, for our indices, and for the FS Club. So with that, thank you. Thank you very much thank you. for joining. Yeah. Take care. Thank you.